Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. This Thursday night, if you are one of the few fortunate ones to be sitting at the Thanksgiving table with family, and you find yourself arguing with one of your siblings over who gets which piece of turkey, then rest assured that the two of you are doing exactly what Darwin thought you would and should be doing. Life, according to Charles Darwin's evolutionary theories, is about a struggle for resources, the strategies employed by every species, human beings included, to survive, reproduce, and guarantee our offspring. Given limited means and inhospitable environments, in order to endure, we must compete an ever-adapting humanity, a process called natural selection. And there's no environment more prone to evolutionary conflict than that of the family unit. From the moment of conception to the moment that sibling reached for the very piece of turkey you have been eyeing, it is a competition for resources between siblings that is most fierce. There's the occurrence of siblicide, one sibling killing another, as in the case of sand sharks, where one devours the other inside the mother's oviducts until only one well-fed shark is left alive. Or if you prefer the newly hatched cuckoo chick, who uses the hollow of its back to scoop up and eject unborn eggs from the nest, lest those potential chick siblings detract from its own prenatal care. In Darwin's schema, it is a zero-sum game. What one sibling has, the other cannot. For one to survive, the other may not. Siblings compete for the finite goods provided by their parents and environment for survival. Food, shelter, and that most precious and most finite resource of all, love. For all those interested in such things, it was Alfred Adler, an earlier follower of Freud, whose understanding of behavioral psychology drew from sibling dynamics. Adler broke with Freud's penchant for explaining behavioral patterns by way of an Oedipal complex, countering that it's actually birth order and the struggle for parental affection that defines us. Firstborns, when faced by the threat of being dethroned by the arrival of a sibling, respond by emphasizing their role, seeking approval from their parents, and by extension, emphasizing the importance of rules, laws, and order. Secondborns, latterborns, and lastborns, on the other hand, when confronted by the unique relationship of the firstborn to the provider of all resources, the parents, take on adaptive strategies to maximize parental investment in them. Frank Soloway's 1990s path-baking book, Born to Rebel, is instructive in that Soloway outlines a repertoire of strategies 
by which siblings de-identify from each other, differentiating themselves, creating individual niches in order to attract attention from their parents. Soloway argues that such an understanding of birth order and personality development helps explain both the disproportionate number of firstborns in leadership positions and the disproportionate number of latter-born creative rebels, Copernicus, Voltaire, Ben Franklin, Harriet Tubman, to name but a few. It's far from a slam dunk. Adler and Soloway's conclusions are fiercely debated, and even they would agree that there are a million other factors determining personality, including sibling gender, spacing and age, and of course, non-familial environmental factors. It is nevertheless a fascinating way to understand ourselves, our family dynamics throughout our lives. Sibling dynamics, a window towards understanding the choices we have made and what we do, where we do it, and with whom we do it, helps explain why despite the fact that we share some 50% of our genetic material with our siblings, not to mention having grown up in the same home, we are wired so very differently from them. It helps explain why we tend to evaluate our achievements not in absolute terms, but relative to those closest to us, our siblings. When I was a kid, I didn't compare my SAT scores, my athleticism, or my musical ability with some kid down the street. I compared myself to my brothers. By extension, it helps explain why we allow ourselves to be assigned these deterministic labels. I'm the funny one, the pretty one, the smart one. Labels that can shackle our self-understandings well beyond childhood. It helps explain why when we grow up with spouses and children and direct deposit accounts of our own, we still refer to our siblings, or at least I do, as our big siblings and little siblings. Darwin, Adler, and Soloway don't explain everything, but they help explain an awful lot about ourselves and the family dynamics that shaped and continue to shape us. And you wanna know what else they help explain? The Torah reading. The story of Esau and Jacob is one of the most well-known, most studied tales of sibling rivalry of the biblical canon, if not all time. And while the biblical account antedates Darwin by a few thousand years, it will prove, I believe, very much in sync with his evolutionary understanding of human nature, providing us with a renewed appreciation for the contours of our ancient narrative and affirming its enduring lessons for us today. Our Parsha's name is Toldot, which means generations, a fitting title given the subject of survival, reproduction, and the passing down of attributes from one generation to the next. In this particular story, the possession in question is God's covenant of land, progeny, and blessing, first established with Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and now in the opening lines of the Parsha, contained within the womb of our matriarch, Rebekah. The two struggled inside Rebekah, and though God does not make the pain go away, God responds to Rebekah's cry by saying, Verav yavod sa'ir, the older will serve the younger. In other words, God indicates that in the case of her offspring, an equitable allocation of covenantal blessing is not in the cards. They may not be sand sharks, 
But as Esau emerges first, his brother Jacob follows, clutching Esau's heel, which is why Jacob Yaakov means a heel grabber. How extraordinary and extraordinarily sad that the name, the label that Jacob receives is not his own, but rather in relation to his big brother. Whatever chance these two siblings may have had of establishing themselves on their own terms quickly dissipates as Rebecca and Isaac commit the unforgivable sin of favoritism. Intellectually, we may understand it. Rebecca, after all, knew from her exchange with God where this story was going. Of course, she was going to favor Jacob. And as for Isaac, perhaps due to his own tortured relationship with his father Abraham, saw something special in his outdoorsy varsity jacket wearing son Esau. Whatever the reasons, it does not take much to see the toxic effects that their favoritism must have had on the boys to be constantly sizing each other up, measuring themselves against each other, jostling for their parents' attention. It's why two such different personalities emerge. It's why they fought in life as they did in the womb, competing for the limited and precious resource of their parents' affection, love, and blessing. The next scene, the trading of Esau's birthright over a bowl of lentil soup, is one we know well. This year, I was drawn to one particular midrash containing the rabbinic suggestion that the bowl of lentils was not just any meal, but a traditional meal of a person in mourning. Esau and Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, the midrash explains, had just passed. Esau had just returned from the hunt. It is, is it possible, I wonder, to read Esau's words, I am at the point of death, to refer not to his own death, but to that of his grandfather. In the midst of loss, who cares, Esau may have thought, about a birthright. Jacob, on the other hand, saw things totally differently, just the opposite. The fact of his grandfather's passing prompted him to think ahead, to position himself, and take the necessary steps to secure the birthright for himself and thus perpetuate his own legacy. And while there need not be a correlation between the death of Abraham and the birthright bowl of lentils negotiation, with regard to the final scene of our Torah reading, the stolen blessing, we're on sure footing. Isaac is well aware that he's about to die, and he calls his beloved sons Esau to prepare him a meal in preparation for the bestowal of his innermost paternal blessing. It is at that moment that the same Rebecca who years earlier was party to a private communication with God overhears this father-son exchange and sets in motion a deception by which Jacob, not Esau, receives Isaac's blessing. There's so much about this scene that we don't know. How Jacob felt about duping his father and brother, how Rebecca justified such a wrong against both her husband and her son. What we do know, however, is that when Esau returns from the hunt to find himself outfoxed by his brother, he lets loose a wild and a bitter cry, Barachini gam ani avi, bless me too, father. And then, in what I believe to be the most painful verse of the whole narrative, if not the Torah itself, Habracha echat hi lecha avi, barachini gam ani avi. Have you but one blessing, Father? Bless me too, Father.
And though Isaac musters something, it's not the blessing that Esau wanted. The biblical system of primogeniture does not make room for compromise. It's a zero-sum game. The birthright, the blessing, what Jacob took, Esau was denied. A tragic turn that in retrospect preceded their very arrival in this world. Whatever the promise these two siblings had of developing a fraternal bond, stillborn at birth. These two brothers never stood a chance. Jacob and Esau are not the only fraught sibling relationship of Genesis. From Cain and Abel competing over God's approval, Rachel and Leah measuring each up by way of metrics of love and fertility, Joseph and his brothers contending for their father's affection, or even the final blessing switch between Menashe and Ephraim. Genesis serves as an extended case study in the origin of species. It's a study that extends to Moses' relationship with his older siblings, Miriam and Aaron, or King David, the youngest of eight brothers, and many, many other examples. These narratives, they continue to resonate for us if for no other reason than the fact that in them we see our own stories, the miscues and misfires of our own lives. How many of our families suffer from forms of the very heartbreaks as experienced by our biblical predecessors? One of the great blessings of my life is my relationship with my siblings and their wives, but it hasn't always been straightforward. It takes work and it takes intentionality. It's a blessing that I don't take for granted for many reasons, one of which being my knowledge that it's a blessing not shared by all. More than the bond between me and my brothers, I'm well aware that it's the bond that will be shared between my own children by which my own parenting will ultimately be measured. And that game is still very much in play. Whatever time and energy we spend in our sibling relationships and managing them as parents, we all need to invest more. And yet, and yet, I will also say that for all the thought and attention we should give to siblings, birth order, and otherwise, it also seems to me that we must be careful to avoid the misstep of assigning excessive importance to something that none of us actually have any control over. None of us chose where we fell in birth order, nor for that matter whether we have siblings at all, nor whether our parents were clumsy or careful in their allocation of love and affection. Significant as sibling relationships may be in determining character and self-definition, it strikes me as an abdication of responsibility to attribute too much weight to it. At some point, each of us needs to take personal agency for who it is we are and who it is we seek to be. At some point, the question of whether we are the leader, the creative rebel, the peacemaker, or the comic is up to nobody but ourselves. At some point, it is us and not anyone else who determines the quality of our sibling relationships, whether we decide to let the wrongs of the past fall by the wayside or allow them to be determinative of our future. With all due respect to Darwin 
It's not the question of origins that matter the most. It's a question of destiny. And the answer to that question is in nobody's hands but our own. The story of Jacob and Esau, it doesn't end this week. Two weeks from now, the two brothers will meet again, having spent decades apart. They will embrace and they will weep. Jacob greets his brother bearing gifts, and in response, Esau responds, Yeshli Rav, literally translating as, I have enough. But on closer inspection, I believe it to be a subtle rejoinder to that very first in utero statement regarding Esau, Rav Yavod Sa'ir. In other words, Esau is communicating not just that he's no longer in need of gifts and birthrights and blessings, but that all those people, himself included, who would have him measure his Rav, his worth, relative to his brother, well, they were just plain wrong. Esau is happy with his portion. And Jacob, for his part, responds with words that I believe to be as beautiful as they come, words that we should all aspire to say to our siblings, Ra'iti panecha kira'ot p'nei Elohim. To see your face is to see the face of God. We are both created equally in the image of God, and there is more than enough love to go around. Your joys are my joys, your sorrows are my sorrows, your blessings are my blessings. Friends, Thanksgiving is just days away. Some of us will be with our brothers and sisters. Many of us, myself included, will not be. But I can think of no better way for all of us to spend these next few days than to pick up the phone to our siblings, telling them that we love them, finding a way to let go of hurts held far too long, to celebrate their joys, to support them in their sorrows, and express gratitude for their presence in our lives. Our brothers, our sisters, they need not be our rivals. They are our shelters, our supports, and our fortresses in times of need and in all times. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah,